Hello and welcome to Asia Perspectives, a podcast from the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm senior editor Jason Winsunis, and I'll be your host for this episode, where we'll be discussing the concept of vaccine diplomacy, specifically from Russia and China, and how each may be hoping to curry favor across Asia. We first raised the topic near the end of 2020 when Tom Standage, deputy editor for The Economist newspaper, joined us to talk about predictions for the world in 2021. More recently, the EIU published a report exclusively on the topic of vaccines, and you can find a link to that in the show notes. As part of the EIU's global forecast, our teams took a look at how China and Russia have been sending millions of doses of coronavirus vaccines to countries around the world, mostly developing states, seemingly to bolster their global reputations as world powers and as reliable suppliers of vaccines and perhaps other healthcare, pharmaceutical, or even technology products. There's some speculation, too, that these Eastern players are seeing a decline in Western influence and are simply making a pragmatic move to fill that void. It could also be suggested that China may be trying to restore some global reputation that took a hit in the early stages of the pandemic. So to better understand these dynamics at play and where this diplomacy could take us, I've asked the EIU's Global Forecasting Director to the podcast to explain vaccine diplomacy and what it means for Asia. Agathe Dumare is the Global Forecasting Director of the Economist Intelligence Unit. She oversees forecasting and publication of our global macro outlook. She also conducts many high-level meetings with research clients on global developments in politics and economics. And for her work with the Economist Intelligence Unit, she draws upon extensive diplomatic experience in emerging markets, as well as a background in investment banking. So welcome to the podcast again. Thank you. Now, to get us uh, started off, Maybe you can first just sort of unpack this phrase, vaccine diplomacy. You know, are we talking about charity efforts, exclusive deals, government aid, something else entirely, or, or all of the above? You know, what Are vaccines being given or sold in this diplomacy effort? Well, it's not a philanthropic effort, I would say. Vaccines are mostly being sold when we take a look at the statistics from both Russia and China. Both countries, well, the vast majority of the vaccines that they send to the emerging world are actually sold. Um, there are a few exceptions um, from China, mostly about 5% of the vaccines that China sends abroad are donations. But it's actually a very, very small amount of vaccines. And actually, I think that this shows that this strategy from Russia and China is really not done for just the sake of it out of you know, a good gesture. It's it's really for Russia and China about fulfilling three goals. The first goal is really to strengthen their global presence all around the world and especially in the emerging world. And it's very much in line with the actions that we've seen from Russia and China, I would say, over the past decade. It's all about counting on the global scene, if possible, on a par with the other superpowers like the US or Europe. The second goal from Russia and China is to boost relations with emerging countries. And you've said it very well. It's all about boosting relations in places where Western influences 
declining or perceived to be declining. And we can think here, for instance, of sub-Saharan Africa, which used to be a place where, for instance, France and the UK, the former colonial powers, had a lot of influence. Well, not so much anymore. And Russia and China are trying to engage with these countries and to fill the void that is being left by withdrawing France and the UK. And finally, the last goal from Russia and China is to establish themselves as suppliers of vaccines, reliable suppliers of vaccines, because our latest assumption at the EIU is that the pandemic is going to be here to stay. It's going to be with us for quite a long time. The disease might well become endemic and we might need boosters of coronavirus vaccines every year or every 18 months. And there are market shares to take. So Russia and China are very keen to establish themselves as suppliers of vaccines all around the world. And this actually highlights the fact that it's not being done out of a, a good gesture from Russia and China. It's also all about commercial opportunities that they want to fulfill. So how much is uh, this diplomacy effort coming from, say, uh, state-owned companies or private companies? You know, how, how, how does that play into the entire idea? Well, actually, that's the very interesting things because actually a lot of the vaccine diplomacy effort from Russia, at least, it comes from a single state-owned um, company that supplies the Sputnik V jab. So we're really not talking about a usual commercial deal here. We're talking about a deal that is being made between a recipient country, um, say Bolivia, for instance, and a company that is backed um, by the Russian government. So it's a, it's a commercial deal, but still a very specific commercial deal. So that's the picture for Russia. It's, it's really state-owned and, and state-linked. For China, actually, that's even more interesting. What we're seeing is that vaccines from China are being sent by both state-owned companies and private companies. And in, in some ways, we could say that they compete with each other for market shares abroad, um, which is very interesting, um, I think. And, and again, this shows that it's, it's a commercial effort, um, mostly. And finally, one thing that I think is interesting to note um, is that in some cases, um, diplomacy for vaccines, actually the vaccines are quite expensive. I, I would tend to think that many people believe that Russian and Chinese vaccines are cheaper than Western-made vaccines like the Pfizer vaccine or Moderna vaccine or AstraZeneca vaccine. And that's the reason why they are so attractive for emerging states. Well, actually, that's not necessarily the case. When we take a look at the pricing of the vaccines, it's actually very murky. It's very opaque because most of the time the deals are not public. But we have some information and this information show that, for instance, in in African countries, the Sputnik V vaccine from Russia is actually very expensive. So again, we go back to the first point. It's really a commercial effort. It's about market shares, and it's also about boosting the presence from Russia and China all around the world. So it's not about solidarity or aid. It's really about a pragmatic approach. So let's drill down a bit more into Asia specifically. Uh, you, you were also on the Jab podcast over at uh, Economist Radio, and let me just plug that podcast for a second for any listeners who haven't heard of it or had a chance to listen. It's a weekly podcast at the sharp end of the global vaccine race, as they say, and I highly recommend it as a way to keep up with what's going on around the world of vaccines. But I get when you spoke to our colleagues at the Jab, 
Latin America came up a lot as a new arena for China and Russia to compete in. Uh, but how about closer to home for us here in Asia? Which Asian countries are sourcing their vaxes from from China or Russia? And are there any stories behind those that might uh, amount to something more than just getting the cheapest goods from the easiest source? Well, exactly as you say, actually, Asia is one of the main regions uh, where China is betting on vaccine diplomacy to strengthen its influence. And it, it makes a lot of sense because, of course, China may be courting some favors from some of its neighbors. So when we take a look at the countries that will use Chinese vaccines in Asia, well, it's it's actually many of them. Uh, we see that the most developed countries in Asia, such as Japan or South Korea or Australia, do not plan to use Chinese vaccines but many others um, actually do. Indonesia is a case in point. Indonesia will be one of the main global recipients of Chinese vaccines. One note here, we mentioned Asia here, but our research shows that there are two other regions where China is actually doing a lot of work with vaccine diplomacy, and it's Latin America, as you've mentioned. We actually see that almost all Latin American countries are receiving Chinese vaccines. And the other region is the Balkans, Eastern Europe. And it makes a lot of sense for China to bet on these two regions because Latin America tends to be, well, traditionally in the sphere of influence of the US. So we go back to the first point about China wanting to count on the global stage on a par with the US. And in the Balkans, China wants to count and to be in the sphere of influence of Europe. But going back to Asia, actually, the recipients of Chinese vaccines, well, of course, we see countries that are recipient countries of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which makes a lot of sense because China also has an interest in seeing Belt and Road Initiative countries recover as soon as possible and, well, tackle the pandemic as soon as possible because China also has some economic interests. Some of these countries may be, for instance, suppliers of commodities for a Chinese economy. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting to mention is that with this strategy, China is actually betting for a long term uh, for some favors from some of its neighbors. So obviously, we can think about access to natural resources. We can think of votes at the UN. Actually, we go back here to the Latin American example. We see that China is actually courting uh, many smaller Caribbean countries, uh, such as um, Barbados, Dominica. Um, and the reason for that is that these countries have votes at the UN and a vote, say, from Trinidad and Tobago has the same weight as a vote from, say, France or Germany. So it's also about courting favors at the UN. And finally, we can think of other deals. Uh, we can think that China may want recipient countries to be more open to 5G equipment, for instance, or defense deals. And it's, it's all very interesting because it's never clearly tied. We haven't seen a clear case where vaccines would be sent in return from some, for something. But in the long term, it's pretty clear that recipient countries will find it very hard to say no. Actually, we have two very interesting examples of this happening. Again, it's in Latin America. Um, we have Bolivia. Uh, where it's not China, but it's Russia, but a few hours after Russia sent some vaccines, um, the Bolivian government got a call from Moscow 
asking for access to rare earth mine, uh, literally a few hours after sending a Sputnik B shipment. And finally, uh, with China, another thing that is interesting is that China may tie uh, the recognition or non-recognition of Taiwan uh, to supplies of vaccines. And actually, it's the only case where we see really a quid pro quo. And it's uh, happening, for instance, in Honduras, um, where the country is considering ending its recognition of Taiwan in return for Chinese vaccines. The whole Taiwan uh, issue seems like it is something that could definitely become more of a uh, football, I guess is the best phrase for it. Uh, I can imagine Taiwan itself, people there might have a good reason both to accept or reject this type of diplomacy. Is that going to be something you see becoming a, a bigger issue going forward? Well, I think that what your question illustrates is that vaccines have become a very, very political commodity, which when we think of it is actually quite extraordinary because we're talking about vaccines that are saving people's lives, but they have become a political tool and a geopolitical tool. Um, talking about Taiwan specifically, uh, as you say, we can think of good reasons to accept Chinese vaccines saving uh, people's lives. But at the same time, it would be pretty tricky for a number of recipient governments to actually accept Chinese vaccines or Russian vaccines. Where we can think of Taiwan, uh, that would have a lot of difficulties to do that. We, we can think of other examples, for instance, closer to Europe, Ukraine, which is essentially at war with Russia, would find it very tricky to accept Sputnik V vaccines. And that's where actually we can think that the word vaccine diplomacy takes all of its meaning because we can see that vaccines are geopolitical tools and they illustrate the balance of power and the diplomatic relations between countries, which is pretty extraordinary again because we're talking of tools to end a deadly pandemic. Now, as someone uh, based in Hong Kong myself, access to mainland China is pretty important. Uh, in our offices here, we, we took a, an early note of some language on the Chinese uh, immigration websites that made it pretty plain that preference would be given to applicants that had been vaccinated with a Chinese-made vaccine. So if Asian business leaders want to access China, which is still the biggest market for almost every type of product. And the Chinese government is giving preference to those who have a made in China vaccine. Might there be uh, more demand for Chinese vaccines? Is, is that part of the diplomacy's objective? Or is it a, entirely a matter of, a, of caution maybe on the part of a country that has managed to bring COVID mostly under control and therefore might not trust solutions from other places? I think it's a bit of everything. I think that the point about caution is probably very true. I think that everyone would tend to trust probably more vaccine that comes from their home country. So for China, it would be Chinese vaccines, because China obviously has more information about the Chinese made vaccines. But actually, this goes back to what we were discussing at the very start of our podcast. I think that it's also about market shares. And obviously, for China, the second largest economic power in the world, soon the largest economic power in the world, to tell business leaders that they will need to be vaccinated with a Chinese vaccine to access the Chinese mainland. It's pretty extraordinary. 
And it means that a lot of people might want to consider Chinese vaccines when they wouldn't have considered Chinese vaccines in the first place, which goes back to the commercial strategy of sending vaccines and producing vaccines and sending them all around the world, also to boost China's presence. Because what's really interesting when we talk about vaccine diplomacy is that we talk of Chinese vaccines, we talk of Russian vaccines. We don't really talk when we discuss the Pfizer jab or the Moderna jab about American vaccines. They're tied to a pharmaceutical company. Whereas for Chinese vaccines and Russian vaccines, even in the way that we define them, they're really tied to China. So it's also about, again, this idea of bolstering their global presence and their global standing and their prestige. Now, do we have a sense of how receptive countries are to this type of diplomacy? Are there examples from Asia or other parts of the world where it has been more or less receptive? Well, I would say countries tend to be pretty receptive <laughs> to vaccine diplomacy, essentially, because every country around the world is trying to vaccinate their own population as soon as possible. And we go back to the idea that vaccine have become a very political tool, um, actually, all governments around the world, rich and developing, are under tremendous pressure from their populations to vaccinate as soon as possible. We see this in developed countries. There's been a lot of controversies in the EU at the start of the rollout of vaccines, which are, which are actually going very fast by international standards, but it wasn't fast enough uh, for the European population. And obviously, in the emerging world, there's also this pressure from populations to vaccinate as soon as possible. But in many cases, actually, governments do not have access to the Western vaccines, the Pfizer, the Moderna vaccines, because they're too expensive or very difficult to ship because they require ultra low temperatures. So they require pre-tricky logistics. And what this means is that the Russian vaccine and the Chinese vaccines are actually filling in a void because they're actually very easy to ship and store. They do not require ultra low temperatures like the other vaccines. And in some cases, they're cheaper than the Western vaccine. So I would say essentially that recipient governments are actually pretty uh, receptive to vaccine diplomacy from Russia and China. But essentially because they see this, they see these vaccines are as their only option to vaccinate their population. And one thing here that I think is interesting to note is that, well, in the Western media, vaccine diplomacy is often portrayed as something negative, something dangerous from Russia and China. But I think we shouldn't underestimate the fact that the population of recipient countries will in many cases be genuinely grateful to Russia and China for providing vaccines. And again, this is going to come with long-term influence on the ground for Russia and China because they will have saved local populations from a deadly disease. And what about uh, supply risks? You know, China is often called the factory to the world and it has become a big pharma ingredient supplier as well. But does, does the scale of the need for vaccines outpace even what China can do? And, you know, where does that leave Russia and its dependence? Because I understand that Russia is also now talking to China produce, to produce that vaccine for them as well. Is that right? 
Well, essentially, I think that you've pinpointed something that is actually very important. And I would say until a few weeks ago or maybe months ago, there were fears that vaccine diplomacy from both Russia and China was actually a very risky strategy for both countries because there were really question marks around the supply of vaccines. I think that actually the situation is different between Russia and China. I think Russia is definitely struggling uh, to scale production of vaccines. There are some pretty technical things here, but essentially the Russian vaccine has two shots and the two shots are different. Uh, you don't get the same one. Um, and Russia has a lot of difficulties to produce the second shot at the moment. So what this highlights is the risk that Russia will overpromise and underdeliver. And actually, when we take a look at the global statistics, Russia actually supplies less than 10% of vaccines globally. So for all the talk about Russia's vaccine diplomacy being in many countries, well, the supply is actually pretty small for Russian vaccines. Talking about China now, um, the picture is actually pretty different. Now, I think there were some questions initially about China's ability to scale production and to produce enough vaccines to, well, produce vaccines for its own population. We're talking about 1.4 billion people, which is already very, very high, and also um, export vaccines. But what we've seen in recent weeks is that China has actually done, well, a very impressive job to boost production of vaccines. And China is actually the first manufacturer of coronavirus vaccines in the world at the moment. Um, so I think that what this shows is that China is really betting on vaccines, both from a very pragmatic stance of protecting its own population to continue having economic prospects, but also to export vaccines all around the world. And we go back to this commercial trend. Um, so essentially, to answer your question, there were question marks about China's ability to scale production. And actually, it's discussions that we had internally a lot when we wrote our paper about vaccine diplomacy. But I think that recent events have shown us that China has really managed to scale production enough to vaccinate its own population at pace and to export vaccines around the world. So to pick up on what you said about, uh, we don't talk much about American vaccine diplomacy, but there is this... Uh, effort called uh, COVAX, right? You can, can you explain what that is and how that plays into that dynamics? And is that actually connected to uh, the IP uh, forgiveness, basically, that the Biden administration announced? So, yes, <laughs> essentially. Um, so COVAX is a WHO-led mechanism to supply vaccines to developing countries that would otherwise struggle to vaccinate their own populations. And I think that the assumption behind COVAX is that no one will be safe until everyone is safe. And the reason for that is that as long as the pandemic will spread around the world, so in places that will either not contain the pandemic effectively or that will tend not to vaccinate their population, very fast. Well, we have a risk of new variants emerging and over time these new variants may mutate again and we can see a scenario where vaccines would gradually become less effective or we would need boosters. So it's, it's essentially a game of catch up um, between the variants and the vaccines. So COVAX tries to supply vaccines to developing countries. And it's essentially financed by developed countries. Um, the US is obviously a big donor to COVAX. 
But the problem is, um, it's actually manifold. COVAX so far has fallen short of its promises. It's only covering 20% of the population of eligible countries, which is not that much. And obviously begs the question of what the 80 remaining percent of the population of eligible countries will do. There's been a lot of delays. So far, COVAX has only supplied a fraction of what it was meant to supply. And the main reason for that is production, because production is the main bottleneck for vaccines at the moment. And following the outbreak in India, India has taken the decision to pose deliveries of vaccines for a COVAX program. But India was supposed to manufacture 85% of the vaccines delivered by COVAX. So obviously this will raise a number of very tricky questions for the delivery of COVAX vaccines. Going back to your question about the link between COVAX and vaccine diplomacy, COVAX was essentially the mechanism for developed countries, say the US, the EU, to do vaccine diplomacy. But it came with a problem. It's that COVAX is not really associated with a given country. There is no big European flag or American flag or a Canadian flag or Australian flag on a COVAX-sponsored delivery of vaccines, which is in stark contrast with a delivery of vaccines that is sponsored by Russia or China, where you would get a big Russian flag, a big Chinese flag, um, press release, and a big ceremony, actually, to celebrate the arrival of these vaccines. So the problem is here that no one really associates COVAX vaccines with Western powers and with Western vaccine diplomacy. And that actually means that a lot of people believe that Western countries are not doing anything for um, supplying vaccines to the developed world, which is in practice is not true. When we take the example of Cambodia, actually COVAX will deliver many more vaccines to Cambodia than China. But the perception is such that a lot of people in the developed world are resentful towards Western countries that they believe are greedy and are hoarding vaccine supplies. So that's that's the main issue at the moment for Western vaccine diplomacy, I would say. What about the, the IP requirements that the Biden administration said that they would be willing to waive so that more vaccines could be produced? Is, is that something to be considered a diplomacy effort? And, and maybe tell us just a little bit about how that's supposed to work. Yes, absolutely. So essentially, this decision from the US was probably a bit surprising to many observers. But at the EIU, we didn't think it was that surprising. And it's actually all linked to vaccine diplomacy. So maybe to take a step back, what the US has said in recent weeks is that it would back a waiver for intellectual property rights patents, essentially for coronavirus vaccines. And that was a pretty extraordinary move because, well, Many of the main companies that produce coronavirus vaccines at the moment are American. We can think of Pfizer or Moderna, for instance. Novavax will come uh, in line very soon. And it was very surprising that the U.S. would take this decision for many observers um, because, well, essentially there's been a lot of fears from pharmaceutical companies that this would have a detrimental impact on research and development, on innovation, on funding. Because obviously if you waive patents and they become a public good, 
then the question mark for pharmaceutical companies is what incentive do they have to do more research and finance billions to do more research for coronavirus vaccines. But actually, our analysis at the EIU of this decision is that, well, there are a few things to unpack here. The first thing is that this is almost fully linked to Russia and China's vaccine diplomacy, because the US is increasingly concerned about Russia and China appearing as the saviors of the emerging world, while the US is seen as hoarding vaccines and keeping vaccines for its own population, because actually the US still hasn't really exported any vaccines. Uh, It's done a few loans to Canada and Mexico, um, but that's pretty much about it. So the US wanted to counter these perceptions, and that was one of the reasons why it made this move. Well, essentially, this decision is mostly symbolic, and it won't have much of an impact on developing countries, at least this year and probably next year. And the reason for that is that patents are only part of the recipe of the equation to produce coronavirus vaccines. Obviously, they are important, but then there's the question of the transfer of technologies that would need to take place, of the training of the workforce that would need to take place, of all the knowledge that pharmaceutical companies have that is not captured formally in a patent, but that they would have to transfer to factories in developing countries for production of vaccines to happen. And obviously, this is very tricky, and it would take a long time. So that's the first problem. The second issue is actually, even if we were to build vaccine factories tomorrow all around the world, these factories would take at least six to nine months to become fully operational. It's really not an on and off switch to build a coronavirus vaccine or a vaccine in general, actually. It takes a lot of time to have a good productivity, to have good yields, and it's, it's almost like wine, actually. You could have the same recipe for vaccines in two different factories, the exact same recipe, but one of these factories would manage to build a good vaccine and the other one, for reasons that are very tricky to pinpoint, would actually not succeed. So it's, it's really more like a recipe, but cooking recipe where sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Um, and finally, the last thing is that, well, actually, when we take a look, and it goes back to the first point, to patents are really not everything. And many developing countries actually do not currently have the capacity to produce the mRNA vaccines. That's the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Actually, what what happened a few weeks ago is that Moderna said it wouldn't enforce the patents for its vaccines. So essentially, it said, you can go for it, you can use our technology, no problem, we wouldn't sue you. But not a single factory around the world has actually taken the step to produce the Moderna vaccine. And what this highlights, again, is that it's not only about patents, um, it's also about knowledge, it's also about the technology, and so far producing mRNA vaccines is very, very tricky. It's actually a new, very innovative technology. Only two years ago, we didn't have such vaccines for humans. So it's very tricky and it would take a very long time. So overall, to go back to the US decision, it's a first step, but it's mainly symbolic. And we do not believe at the EAU, because we've done a lot of work on global vaccination timelines, that it will have an impact on vaccination timelines in developing countries until probably several years, if it has an impact at all.
So it sounds like there's a, a lot more long-term developments yet to come in, in this uh, diplomatic arena, and we'll have to have you back on again to discuss the Asia perspective part of it. Uh, I know that you guys are always doing our global forecasts, and maybe we can have you on again to talk about how the pandemic plugs into the global picture for GDP growth. Thanks so much. I would love to do that. So thank you all again for listening and check the show notes for a link to the report we've been discussing. And for more EIU research, please visit our website, perspectives.eiu.com. And please subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode.